Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Day of the Dad, the new fortnightly podcast that celebrates everything that is great and gory about parenting. I'm Ed Wood and with me is my co-presenter Keith Stewart, author of the Richard and Judy book club best-selling novel, A Boy Made of Blocks. Say hello, Keith. Hello. This episode is a special for Autism Awareness Week, so who better to join us than the award-winning author of the wonderful million-selling novel, The Rosie Project, Graham Simsian, who followed that massive hit-up with The Rosie Effect and most recently his new novel, The Best of Adam Sharp. Good morning, Graham. Good to talk to you, Ed. And hi, Keith. Hello. <laughs> so let's start by having a look at the news, as ever. Keith, what have you got for us this well, morning? Well, um, there, yeah, there was, there's kind of a paucity of uh, parental news this week. It's in a bunch of newspapers, but we've got the Daily Mirror version. Uh, a new study, a new enormous study of 1.4 million people, and it finds that uh, parents apparently live longer than those who are childless. According to this research. Now, does this not slightly contradict something that we had last year that suggested childless couples were happier? Well, it doesn't contradict it. But yeah, there was recent (laughs) research to suggest that childless couples are actually happier than, than parents but but we live longer, so we get to be miserable, but for a longer time. Okay. So, yeah. It's like that old joke, isn't it? You know, will I live forever? Nobody will feel like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we, yeah, obviously stress, maybe the stress of parenthood, for some reason, keeps people alive longer. But yeah, it, it, it looks like I don't know. I don't know whether the, oh, it was carried out by the uh, an institute in Stockholm in Sweden. So I don't know if parenting is less stressful in Sweden. Maybe it is. Uh, well, it certainly looks cooler. Yeah, I suspect yeah. it might simply be because night feeds feel like they go on forever, mm-hmm. and then. Or you feel like you're living forever. Maybe, Maybe that's it. Maybe, okay. uh, yeah. But um, but that's interesting and good news. But I don't know if it. I don't know what the effect is if you have more children. Whether you live longer, whether you get five years longer per child or something. I don't know. Do, do you think there's a tipping point? You know, two children you live, live longer. Then, three, it's about the same. After five, then you're gonna dies. die when you're thirty. Yeah. Yeah. You know what happens with these big studies? These enormous numbers. They say yes, it's got a significant effect. But that the magnitude of the effect is often you know half a month or something like that. Yeah. But it doesn't actually help. That. That's yeah, exactly. True. So we probably get two weeks extra to yeah. live and not like 40 years. And they probably also haven't factored in the vast amount of Sauvignon Blanc that you drink as a parent of a young child. Yeah, that's Which true. probably takes away that lifespan. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, there's very, lots of parameters there that they've got to... But it's, it, but it's, it's good news for people that are going to become parents. <laughs> <laughs> well, indeed. Um, and so the other bit of news this week is slightly more autism-related. As I mentioned, uh, this episode goes out on the first day of autism 
Autism, World Autism Awareness Week. Um, and the, there seems to be this kind of ongoing new movement towards understanding of autism in retail spaces and transport and things like this. I hope so, anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I should mention at this moment that uh, I have an autistic son. Keith has an autistic son. And yeah. his book, A Boy Made of Blocks, focuses on the relationship between a dad and, uh, and an autistic boy. And Graham's first novel, The Rosie Project, featured a protagonist who, while not described as having Asperger's, showed those traits. The the autism community, the Asperger's community, if you want to call it that, and the psychological community have all decided that Don Tillman absolutely has Asperger's. So (laughs) I I just didn't want to be be the psychologist, you know, which I'm not. Diagnose your own character. Well, that's right, yeah. I had no expertise to do that, but plenty of literary critics felt they had the expertise. And uh, (laughs) and then I would always say, look, I I can't say I don't know. I'm not an expert. And I finally sat down with an expert who said, listen, you know, I'm I'm the professor of, you know, specialising in autism, and I'm telling you, Don Tillman has Asperger's. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting because I because I always thought that was I I thought that was a purposeful irony in the book that he has to talk on Asperger's doesn't he and I thought you were doing that on purpose because he was because well yes yeah, so I do everything on purpose yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's good I don't <laughs> well, well but at the end it's all on purpose at least because you've chosen to keep it mm-hmm. um, and look I certainly wanted to get the A word on the page but you know you've got a guy there who's um, in his, who's turning forty um, who would have been born therefore in the nineteen seventies and at that stage there's very unlikely he would have had an Asperger's diagnosis as a child. Um, and he's then gone through life satisfactorily as far as he's concerned and sees no need for a diagnosis. So that the, the message there is that Don is, is pushing back on having that diagnosis. Mm. Yeah, okay. And, and when I mentioned this sort of level of understanding, I, I think part, and we'll come back to yeah, this, I think sure. when we talk more about, about both books, um, but I think books have a part to play in this. And one of, one of the things that I've picked out of the news is that in America, uh, the, uh, quote, mobile regional airport uh, has opened its doors to essentially become a practice centre for people with autism. So uh, the scheme is called Wings for Autism, and it's an airport rehearsal designed to alleviate some of the stress families suffer when flying with a family member on the autism spectrum. God, you don't need to be on the autism spectrum to suffer stress flying in the USA. Well, so <laughs> or, or for that matter, with a child, actually. I think those of us with young children think it'd be quite a good idea to be able to go and practice. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of a simulation of an airport environment so the autistic children uh, or, or anyone on the autism spectrum gets an understanding of what the airport procedures like. Exactly, so picking up boarding passes, boarding a plane and the idea is also that uh, TSA employees can go and see what it's like to have autistic people getting on a flight and how to treat them and, and make them feel at home and and things like that. I mean, broadly, this seems like a, a good thing to me, and it seems to fit in with things that retailers have done. Yeah, I mean, we've seen, obviously, uh, well, we've seen, uh, we see it in cinemas, so a few cinemas around the country now have started to do autism showings and films, so they do things like, and I've taken um, my son's act to a couple of these, and uh, the sound is much lower, uh, the lights are on, mm-hmm. uh, and and um, the cinema I go to, they leave the doors open as well. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, I think that's really interesting. Toys R Us have a uh, have started, well, some Toys R Us branches have started doing it an hour early in the morning for autistic children. And again, they keep all the sounds down. They don't have lots of uh, music playing, uh, keep all the lights much higher. So... Yeah, I mean, you get, you're getting more awareness. It's interesting because it's controversial in that autism it is. community, isn't it? Because some people think that this is uh, th- this is th- that all environments, like especially toy shops, should 
be geared all the time to to non-neurotypical children, but yeah. I'm not sure how realistic that is. But it's um, inter- it's interesting that um, autism has been picked out of the uh, of neurodivergent conditions or whatever in a way that almost you know being in a wheelchair was kind of 20, mm. 20 30 years ago when you know ramps started being put in workplaces and things like that. It it, it seems like a very positive step to me, albeit maybe quite small at the moment. I don't, what do you think, Graham? Oh, absolutely. That was the, the analogy that came to mind. And, of course, one of the things I think that drove acceptance of people in wheelchairs was baby boomers getting old mm-hmm. and, and actually it not being someone who's you know, who's had that um, disability all their lives, but just, just plain getting old and powerful people who expect their wishes to be <laughs> respected mm-hmm. actually having some say. Um, but, I mean, for, for me, the, the you know, making places autism-friendly is the same as making them wheelchair-friendly. Mm-hmm. And, and not you know, there shouldn't be a, a competition between, you know, is it autism-friendly or is it neurotypical-friendly, but rather saying we're a, a diverse group of people and we should be welcoming and, you know, as wide a group of people, and not just into, into shops and everything, but into jobs, the whole, you know, you get me on my, on my hobby horse here, but just saying the wider we can push those limits and saying, mm-hmm. you know, you're a human being who can be mainstream, um, that a more diverse and interesting society will have. And it, I think it's a, a, a virtuous cycle that you get the more people you get who are perhaps autistic in the workforce, the more you say that you can deal with them, let's have some more in, they'll recruit others and so on. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, it, and it's no different from my point of view to, say, putting Braille on the keypad of an sure. ATM or, you know, yeah. these are all things which just make life more livable and, and actually empower people to then go forward work in the workplace yeah. you know go shopping and yeah. actually be productive and happy people yeah exactly and it, it's becoming much more apparent that people on the autism spectrum have uh, lots of dof- different things to offer workplaces mm. different way of lo- a different way of a different perspective different way of looking at things different skills different abilities you know obviously we see a lot of talk about Asperger's being really important in the technology sector uh, in Silicon Valley, it's because lots of people on the Asperger's sec, um, uh, on the, uh, who are Aspergers are really, really good with numbers, maths, coding. Like coding is really, really big. Mm. Which uh, is why, so. which why Don Tillman in the Rosie Project, uh, you said that I, th- I believe I, I saw an interview where you said it was inspired by someone that you knew that worked in IT. I think. Yeah, look, look, one guy in particular, but a large number of people that I met through IT, through studying science. Um, you know, being in the radio club when I was a kid, all, all those sorts of things. And those people were you know, good people, functioning members of society. I mean, if I was to draw an analogy, let's try something different, perhaps a bit more controversial. Uh, you, know, you go back you know, 50, 60 years or less, and you know, the place of women in the workforce was nothing like as solid as it is today. And I mean, there's still a, a way to go. And women were rejected in certain positions, which had nothing to do with, um, which had everything to do with prejudice and so on, not with their ability to do the job. And I think we see the same thing. Um, I heard John Elder Robeson, who great advocate for, for autism speaking, and just saying, you know, why should you have to do well an interview to get a job? This is something that someone with you know, autism may do very badly at, but if it's not a customer-facing job, if the job doesn't require you have interview skills and you're going to be sitting behind a keyboard all day, why is that a criterion? Yeah, and this is this is exactly, I mean, this is a worry that, um, that, that I have now with, with Zach, and you probably will have exactly with your son, is that, um, so yeah, we've already been told that by our school that my son Zach, who is 11, won't be sitting SATs. Mm. Now for them, there's obviously... Uh, 
there's obviously a, a caring element of that in that there's no point in him doing it because he won't be able he won't he won't be able to he won't be able to do it. But also, you know, inkling of a doubt about statistics and having to keep their numbers mm-hmm. up and things like that. But what worries me is I don't think Zach will probably be going for O levels and A levels and degrees because he's never going to pass those exams. So what does that? But that, does that say that he's got nothing to offer because he hasn't got a piece of paper that says I've got eight GCSEs? I don't think that's true. And I, um, I completely agree, and I think it's a, a problem at young age as well. So my son is uh, next year; he'll be in year two, which is when they do their first benchmark, yeah. essentially exams, uh, and they're not allowed teaching assistants. And and academically, he he's on the same level or above his peers, but without a teaching assistant, I, I don't think that that yeah. will be the case. And yet, in academia. You know, if you do have something like if you're a student, you need time out. You get, you do get extra time. You do get, you know, other conditions. Yeah. Look, I mean, the, the thing that I would say, um, my, my observation, um, is that the toughest time for people with autism, particularly those who are able to sort of get out there and function in the world and are able to look after themselves and to get the basics done, is school. That that they they are restricted so much in the choices they have available to them, so many hoops they have to go through that everybody has to go through. You get out to the workplace, and there's so much more diversity, so much different choice of job where you might you know, this skill is valued, this skill isn't needed. But at school, you're in that same sausage machine. It's yeah. a terribly, terribly tough place to be, so, even for kids with autism. So, yeah. so one of the things I wanted to pick up on, because normally we have a sort of review section now as well. Mm. I th- this episode's obviously a bit more themed than our others will be, uh, maybe a little more serious because of the subject matter. But um, uh, so the the thing I wanted to talk about was this point about labels, um, because it's very relevant to you, Graham. Yeah. Uh, it's also re- very relevant to Fantastic Beasts, which is out um, this week on DVD, Fantastic Beasts and where to find them, which, um, for those who don't know, is a kind of spin-off uh, from the Harry Potter series, um, starring Eddie Redmayne as Newt Scamander, um, reset in kind of Prohibition-era New York, uh, but very much about people that are different, um, so madges and non-madges, that's magical people, basically, and uh, non-magical um, and there's a lot of talk online about whether Eddie Redmayne's performance suggests Newt Scamander is autistic. And, and people have certainly uh, adopted this, but it's certainly never said in the film. It, it wouldn't have been in the period anyway. But I've, I found a quote from uh, someone online from a website called Odyssey that says, whether Newt actually has autism or some other neurodivergent condition, or it's just a bit peculiar, whether you love the movie or hate it, whether you love Eddie Redmayne or hate him, one thing is very clear. There needs to be more representation of people like Newt. Many people, including myself, fell in love with him instantly when they saw themselves reflected in Newt. And this is from a a, a website that talks about autism. Do we think it's harmful to add labels? Do we think it can be useful not to? Um, I think there's a personal thing that happens here. Um, I think quite clearly there are people who get a diagnosis of autism who feel that suddenly they understand everything or their parents suddenly understand almost everything, um, it gives you a label, it gives you a path forward, it says I know what's going on now, enormous sense of relief and you know, I've spoken to autism groups and so on where they say oh he got his diagnosis and now we all feel we all feel better. I think the great risk of that though, the, the downside of it is, um, is the stereotyping, the labels from now on, the kid who loses his temper, who can't cope or something like that, who's been labelled with autism, it's a meltdown. It's got a new word. The other kid in the class who isn't labelled with autism has that. Then it's just that kid playing up 
or whatever. Um, and I think that um, you know, we over, you know, Don Tillman says this in the books, we over-recognise patterns. And you know, we're inclined to then to attribute everything to that, to, to see it as a sort of um, essentialism mm. where we say this person is defined by their autism rather than it being one of their characteristics. And my own position on this is, is it's a characteristic of somebody in the same way as being short or tall. It's going to be very important sometimes, like if you're playing basketball. And there's other occasions when it's not going to be important at all. It doesn't, de- it doesn't define the person. I, I guess it depends also on severity. I well, mean, yeah. the, there is this this cliche right. that it's a huge spectrum, and certainly Asperger's can be mm. seen as quite yeah. was right. separate for a long time to autism. Mm. Uh, and, and you know, some some people are profoundly autistic, yes. and that's a very different thing. I suppose it's about empowerment, really. And if you find the label as an individual, as a parent of an yeah. autistic child, as someone who's autistic, empowering in the same way, you know, yeah. Black Lives Matter mm. or something mm. could be an empowering thing. Yeah. What yeah. do you think? Yeah, I, I think so. And I think what interested me about Fantastic Beats, Beasts was that it both portrayed Eddie's character as a sympathetic character. You felt emotionally attached to him because of his difficulties communicating with the other characters. You got that side of him, but it also equally well communicated his strengths and some of his surprising strengths as a character. So I felt, I thought it was interesting that he wasn't labelled. I think it was important. and But I think... What I liked about it was it was a sympathetic but not a patronising portrayal of Asperger's. And I think, like you're right, Graham, I think the ability to project onto that character without being told and labelled that he is um, that he's Asperger's was really important. And I think we've seen this quite a lot in with some really interesting characters over the last three or four years, like Saga Noren from The Bridge, the mm-hmm. lead character in The Bridge, who's this really interesting, uh, quite mannered and difficult detective. Um, who lots of people have said is on the Asperger's, uh, who's Asperger's, and uh, the, the writers have always uh, denied it. And we see a lot um, of portrayals elsewhere in the media. Drax from Guardians of the Galaxy is supposed to be Asperger's. So is uh, so is uh, Symmetra from the Overwatch game. So it's really interesting that we have this these broad spectrums of characters who are being used to present the possibility of Asperger's without being labelled. I and think, if I, I, think if, I can, yeah, if I can just buy in on this to acknowledge particularly what, what you said, um, Ed, that um, it is you know, a spectrum. And if you have profound autism, I mean, look, there, there are going to be some very serious and obvious things happening here, which where you have someone at the other end who's a little odd. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're, we're speaking very broadly here. But at one end, people tend to be pushing for acceptance. At the other end, we start getting, talking about people looking for a cure. Um, and even though from a medical point of view it may make sense to say it's all on the one spectrum, um, I don't. You know, there are plenty of people you know, who I know who have diagnoses of Asperger's syndrome who don't want to be called autistic because that raises a whole, not because they've got a problem with autistic people, but because it raises a whole different bunch of stereotypes and expectations. I mean, just, just this mm-hmm. whole social thing. Um, I had an opportunity to meet and have a chat with Bill Gates at one stage and people asked me, they say, Almost first question: Does he have Aspergers? Mm. And I've done a great deal of reflection and drilling on that question: Is why they're asking and what it would mean if the answer was yes. And you realise that what it would mean if the answer was yes for many people is: Well, his philanthropy, all that, must be driven by that. He's only doing it because he's trying to get some points on the board. Suddenly, the whole view, the, the mm. prism they're looking at him through, changes, and you can see well why he might choose to avoid that that categorisation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, people said the same about Stanley Kubrick, didn't they? They say mm. you know he was obsessive, collecting, that sort of thing, but it made him a genius. Just to go back to sort of parenting um, oh, and, right. and, the issue, <laughs> and the issue of the spectrum. I mean, yeah. when, when you were working on, uh, when we were working on the edit and the writing of A Boy Made of Blocks, 
Uh, both Keith and I have sons who are at the high functioning and they're both in mainstream schools. Uh, but there were points where I was like, well, that, you know, speech delay, la la la. And Keith's like, no, my son didn't have that. Yeah. And, and we had this weird thing where I would be saying, yes, but this is autism. And Keith would say, no, no, that's autism. And, yeah. and you realise actually even children who are in mainstream schools doing similarly... It's very diverse. Are completely yeah. different. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you've said it before, but you, you know, there's a saying in the community that you meet one person, you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Mm-hmm. And you know, timely, and it frustrates me when people lock into the stereotypes. They've said to me, look, um, you know, Don Tillman is just Sheldon Cooper, written from first person. You've obviously watched Big Bang Theory and just cribbed it. I've never seen it. I've never watched Big Bang. <laughs> well, we've landed in the same place. Yeah. My kids who watch Big Bang Theory and have said, no, these are quite entirely different mm-hmm. people, mm-hmm. but people are locking into a few characteristics that because they're unusual, they're writ large. They see those and they can't see past that. Yeah, yeah. And again, it's what you're saying about pattern recognition as well. Like we are, we do, do as a species tend to look for patterns. And if we can find it, then that makes us relieved. So if we can go, oh, this, this, and this means Asperger's or autism spectrum. Now I understand this. I can put them in that little, little pigeon Here hole. comes another one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Got them nailed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, let's put them in this Venn diagram yeah, yeah. the way the world works. It is a bit like saying all black people are like Malcolm X. I mean, yeah, it's just yeah. not, you yeah. know, like yeah. saying all, all people with Asperger's yeah. are like Bill Gates. It's just not true. Yeah. Mm. Um, I did want to put a little shout out to a book at this point, which is not, neither of your books. Uh, but but we're talking about the sort of authentic voice. It's not even published by my publisher. Uh, but I don't know if anyone's read The Reason I Jump. But oh, yeah. I, I found that the most astonishing book by uh, Naoki Higashida. Mm. Uh, translated by David Mitchell, who who happens to be one of my favourite authors, anyway. Um, but that that's written by an autistic boy, a Japanese autistic boy, translated into English, and it's stunning. And one of the one of the only things I've read from an autistic child's point of view. I don't know if either of you have read it. I've I've read it, yeah. And did you find it helpful? Well, in some ways, I wish I'd read it. Very, like before Zach was diagnosed when he was younger because I felt it would have been a lot more helpful to me then when I was just coming to terms with the fact that Zach was, was different and had a set of problems that I didn't really understand I think then it would have been but I read it actually quite late and to me a lot of what he says although it's valuable and true uh, I felt like I discovered it all through Zach in some yeah. ways. So I feel like it's a book that I would love to give to people who aren't sure mm-hmm. about autism. I've done that. Yeah. I've given it to relatives. and, and you know, Because they're not spending every day necessarily with an autistic Yeah, and it's, it's short and it's really not, it's really beautifully written, obviously translated by David Mitchell, so obviously it would be. But um, yeah. Yeah, interesting. I've got a copy of it. I haven't read it yet, right. and, I, and I intend to. Um, but when I was researching to, to write The Rosie Project... Um, the research, I didn't do any reading of medical accounts of Asperger's slash autism, um, of you know, experts writing on it, but I did read a few first-person accounts. And that, to me, was interesting. And, you know, I, I think there's a real problem here. We talk about, one of the things we talk about with people with autism, Asperger's, is that they lack empathy. It's almost, you know, what, what's the defining characteristic? Lack of empathy. And yet, I've got a good friend who almost certainly has Asperger's. He said, you know, I got to work with this guy with Asperger's and we just communicated wonderfully. We almost didn't have to talk. It was was fantastic working on a computer project. And you think, you know what? This idea that they should have more empathy for neurotypicals. Mm -hmm. You know, are we neurotypicals 
mm-hmm. making the, prepared to make the same journey, or are we showing a lack of empathy towards where they're coming from? I mean, the example with the uh, US airports and so forth, what I'd really like to do there is not just have them watch people with autism suffer or whatever. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to turn up the noise and the lights and make it get them a sense of this is what it would feel like if you were autistic, as close as you can get. Yeah. Give them a, There's been a, um, in terms of empathy building, virtuality has been used. There was a study done a couple of years ago uh, where I think it was it was to do with race. So they put people who identified as racist into a VR program where they, embo- they embodied a black person and did empathy tests afterwards and, and found that uh, empathy uh, improved through embodiment. So if you embody a different person, whether it's a different ethnicity, a different gender, uh, if you inhabit that in a virtual world, it can lead to great um, to greater empathy. So maybe, yeah, maybe a, an Asperger's or an a, a autism spectrum uh, simulator in VR might be a really helpful thing. Uh-huh. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And and returning to the issue, I want to come on a little bit to your new book, Graham, The Best of Adam Sharp. But the, these sort of autistic traits that we've been talking about, the sort of collecting, the the IT, the, you know, some of which may be stereotypical, I'm sure, uh, but certainly are true in my son, I don't know about Zach. But they, they're also very male traits, and the vast majority of autistic people are male. And I see some of those traits still in The Best of Adam Sharp. Funny you should say that. Yeah. Um, you know, when I first put the, the Don Tillman character from the Rosie Project out, up in a short story, and I was studying at the time, so my writer's workshop, and put it down, and everybody's talking about Asperger's syndrome, and this woman says, oh, for God's sake, he's just a bloke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all, all men are like that to, to a greater or lesser extent, supposedly. Um, but, look, I mean, to me, Adam Sharp is not someone that I would think would be diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome. Um, no, I but, wouldn't but, but he's got some of those analytic characteristics that... that yeah, was certainly present in the milieu that I lived in with, with information technology people. So he's a guy in a very messy relationship situation whose approach is to try to figure it out. Mm. Um, and, and that, to me, is, is what you're responding to, that he's... Is that a fair yeah, that's, that's exactly it. And, uh, I mean, the sort of books that I love most about men... Uh, and I do, I do really like reading these sorts of books about men. Of, let's face it, you know, around forty-ish or late thirties. Uh, but you know, High Fidelity yeah. was one of yeah. my favourite novels yeah. in my twenties. These are men who are a little bit anal about things. They're quite soul-searching. They all, they almost catalogue their relationships in the same way they catalogue. Music, music again mm. plays a role in this because your character's a pianist. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a tiny bit about the storyline so that people who haven't read it yet? Oh, very okay. The best, very of Adam, briefly. the best of Adam Sharp. Very briefly, we have a forty-nine-year-old man in a stable, long-term relationship, but. 22 years ago, he travelled to Australia from the UK, fell madly in love with a woman, never really closed that one off, never got completion, and has carried a torch for her all this time. Only when he listens to a bit of a sad song and music, it doesn't affect his present day life, it's just a fantasy, Mm -hmm. and then she emails him. Right. And how many men do you think have this kind of 
romantic view of their past. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, am I, am I hairdressing? <laughs> I tell them the plot, he goes, oh, God, if my wife knew about the woman I always think about. <laughs> when I hear the song. <laughs> so you go to the hairdresser for ideas for your books. Well, look, I think, I think, I don't know about that level of romantic connection, but, but I think um, one of the, the motivations for the book was that I think that there, there are men I know who the sole time you'll see a tear running down their face or they're really emotionally engaged is when they're listening to music. Mm. That they're not unemotional beasts, but they're not great with emotional connection, but a song, I mean, compare it with a book. You put the lyrics of a song on a bit of paper and no man you know, that I know <laughs> is going to read, pick up and happily read a book that, that is made up of those sorts of sentiments. Mm. I love you so much, I missed you so <laughs> long. Yeah, oh, 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 yeah. Yeah, oh my God, this is just trash romance mm. fiction. But put it to music and have someone with a gravelly voice sing it and some good guitar, and, and they'll sit back and cry. So, mm. so yeah. I, wanted, I wanted to explore that. Yeah. And why do you think that is? Do you think it's just resistance against sort of being seen as feminine? I mean, the, is that more Australian as well? Or is that do you see that everywhere you go when you're talking about books? You know, are men kind of the same the world over? I don't know if they're the same the world over, but I think in Western English-speaking um, countries, and certainly in Germany as well, because I've travelled in Germany and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, Netherlands, look, you get that that picture that men can be uh, overall still in this generation more closed emotionally than than women are less um, less in pursuit of the emotional experience perhaps um, in te- particularly in terms of reading and so on but music is different I, I know more men who are really engaged with popular music than women. <laughs> yeah. Me and Keith, yeah. At this point, me and Keith are nodding furiously. Yeah, in I mean, it's like a geeky way. thing about uh, about it, isn't it? But I don't. I'm. I think it's interesting in that. Um, was it you, Ed? I was talking to you about someone's son. I don't know. I can't remember. I had this conversation about someone's son who who was reading um, JJ Moore's book, Me Before You. Uh, yeah. Well, it's not my son because he's six. No, uh, but some, <laughs> he's advanced. Son. It's not that advanced. No, was yeah. it? Uh, no, I was it wasn't a, me. Right, I was having a conversation with someone. I'm like hoping I'm not dropping someone. Uh, I hope I'm not dropping someone's son into it here. <laughs> so I won't name any names. But a friend of mine who has a teenage son well, was really enjoying reading JJ Moyes' book. Uh, Moyes, Moyes, Moyes' yeah. book. Uh, but uh, me before you. Uh, but he was kind of embarrassed about taking it yeah. into school, so he put a he put he put a different cover on the book. <laughs> yeah. Did he so put a porn had, magazine? Yeah, on? yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. So then it was acceptable. It's <laughs> readers' wives. <laughs> yeah. Look at this. It's I've just, got readers' wives. Crying. Age there with readers' wives. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, se- seriously, one of the issues I have with with my books, and if you have um, as well, Keith, but with uh, the boy made of blocks, but is I'm saying the publishers all the time. I want a gender neutral cover because they, this is women's fiction. They say because mm. it's about relationships. So hang on. It's a middle-aged bloke telling the story from a male point of view, and so on. Why is this women's fiction? Oh, because it's about love. Yeah. Um, and you know, men who read it, you know, to my knowledge, thoroughly enjoy it. Probably my biggest fans you know, are male uh, readers. But you don't want to have a cover which just screams chiclet um, because it's an immediate turn. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I actually think men would read more romance novels if it was if, if they could get away like I think the, wor- like, the worst thing about the patriarchy is that we're told that we're not allowed to like them uh, whereas um, I, I really like romantic novels I love romantic films some of my favourite films like I love Dirty Dancing and Pretty Woman yeah. uh, and I have no shame in saying that but I'm sure that a lot of men do and I feel like what was really interesting about the Nick Hornby and Tony Parsons era of literature was that uh, they were telling those romantic stories through the lens of through the lens of men in a way men could understand and process uh, emotion and going back to the sort of parent childhood 
thing. Is it just me, or are, or are those kind of stories suggesting? And I, th- I think I believe this is probably true that men kind of get stuck as teenagers, and actually a little bit of us, you know, we're still slightly lovelorn teenagers who are into sitting in our bedroom listening to music. Is but, it, yeah, I th- yes. Were, were, I mean, were you like that, Graham? Were you? Well, let, let, me talk about my pro- let me talk about my protagonist, <laughs> Adam Shaw, who is doubtless... A Do you project- want me to go Jeremy is, Paxman yeah, on you? Is, Graham, who is, you like that? Who is doubtless a projection of me in some ways. Okay. But, but, but my, yeah, my, my experience is that we do, and me included. We get stuck on music, for example, what, which I'm saying is a peak emotional experience for many men, um, on music of our late teens, early 20s. And I would suggest that you could go from that and say that men don't put as put as much emphasis on emotional development beyond that point as they perhaps should. You know, sure, mm. they're earning more money and they're getting more mm. professional skills and all that sort of thing, but are they becoming more emotionally mature beings after the age of 25? Until maybe you know, they have children. I mean, maybe well, that, that is the that, thing. That is, that, go, that is going to test you and change you, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I, yeah, I think this is a correlation causality argument. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? Because... Um, so he's wanting to figure it out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. I, he's I been sitting there working out. out that phrase, yeah. I think. Yeah. Oh, no, it's very confident. You've um, had patriarchy. I think, yeah. I think no, um, so I think it's not that men don't develop emotionally it's just that they're told not to and I think that one of the reasons why men go back and listen to the music for their teenage years and their young adult years is because those were the years they were allowed to express themselves emotionally and after that we get into a workplace culture and then we get into an adult male culture and we're not allowed to sit down and say I watched this film and it made me cry so I think that's why people, I think that's why a lot of men, it's not just that men are emotionally stunted after 25, it's that they, it's at that point between 18 and 25 where they listen to the Smiths or, or My Chemical Romance or whatever, that was the one point in their lives, being at a university where they're allowed to express their emotions. And what about as dads? Uh, you know, are we allowed to be soppy? We're all dads here. We, do we feel we were allowed to be soppy? Well, well, look, I'm older. I'm older than you guys, I would guess. Um, and I think my generation was allowed to be a little soppier, a little more emotional than the previous generation. But then I see the following generation, I've got a, a son in his 20s now, um, much more emotionally um, open, you know, prepared, you know, in, in the acceptance of that emotional openness, which is a great thing. Mm. Um, but, you know, we were still pretty stiff upper lip and, you know, men don't cry, boys don't cry, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. So, so Graham, can we talk a little bit about what you're doing now? So, the best of Adam Sharp's just come out in the UK. Yep. Um, and are you working on something new to come out in the future? Yes. Uh, my wife and I have uh, collaborated on a book, um, which is a romantic comedy set on the Camino de Santiago de Compostela, the famous pilgrims' walk in in France and Spain. And we've written alternate chapters because she's a writer as well. So, so have you been doing a male point of view and her a female? We or? thought we'd do it that way just just to keep the degree of difficulty down. Um, <laughs> It would have perhaps been better, have been better, ther- better therapy to do it the other way around, but probably not as not as saleable. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just just to even sort of tie into when we're talking about um, romance and so forth, and why men don't read romance. I think there's a real vicious circle that happens here, mm-hmm. and it is that men are portrayed. I think in the majority of romance novels, the portrayal of male characters is very very thin, very stereotypical. They, you know, that if I wrote a female character, I bet nobody would read my stuff. You know, in terms <laughs> of that thinness. You know, they, they're good looking, they're strong, they're silent they've had some wound in their past you know give me a break um, but but because they're writing for an audience that is not particularly critical about those characters not being men is that Fifty Shades of Grey you just described <laughs> I'm just sitting uh, there thinking that's Christian Grey isn't it well how many romance novels have you read 
Yeah, well, 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 well. You read Fifty Shades of Grey, though, so I think that, that only, only I don't. Pages. Yeah, I think that Fifty Shades of Grey was simply a, a novel in a genre um, using certain tropes that went very mainstream. But there's plenty of romance novels out there which. Not every single one of them, but a lot of them portray males in a very thin, stereotypical way because they don't need to do much more than that. But if men were reading this, you would start getting pushback and say, in order to attract our male audience, we've got to write a deeper, a deeper male character. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think I'm in an interesting situation with what, what I write because despite the fact that I've got male protagonists and so forth, because of the subject matter, I get a lot of women reading the books. They're going to be very critical about my female characters, about the authenticity of their emotions and so on. So I've actually got to write my secondary female characters with some degree of, of depth just because otherwise the books won't get read. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting discipline. Yeah. And you, because um, I'm writing a book from alternative point of views, but I'm writing it by myself. So I've yeah. got to find them. So my next, this is so the my second next book. book. Yeah, my next book. Dave the had. sex book, did you say? The next. The next. The next. <laughs> no, that's his third <laughs> Yes, the sex book is uh, book three. Yeah, from um, alternative <laughs> points of view, you should say. <laughs> so, yeah. Freudian, sorry about it. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. So, um, yeah. Um, so it's Days of Wonder, and it's written from a father and a daughter's perspective. Yeah. Each chapter, just to, just uh, just to find out from you, just from my own research. <laughs> Are you He's looking at me, by the way. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, so, do each of your chapters comment on the same situations, but from different point of views? Like, is there something that happens, and then you'll write the chapter on the men's point of view that maybe contradicts the kind of like versions of us? There's, there's, yeah. a, there's a little bit of that, but you drive the reader nuts in terms of narrative flow. So, largely. You know, each of them takes it in turns to pick up the story, but they're, yes. they're doing things separate. So when they're by themselves, obviously they've got their own their own story. When they're together, the story will be told by one of them. But then someone might recap it, and you know, it's the old that went well, and well, oh my God, I came out of there feeling like a you know, oh yeah. <laughs> like, and, yeah. And just to say, that book's going to be called Two Steps Forward. Is that, that right? is going to be called Two Steps Forward, yep. But that's not for another year or two? Look, in the UK, I think, um, well, um, assuming the Penguin Random House pick it up, um, <laughs> then I would hope uh, probably early next year. Okay. Well, look, I think we've reached time when it's the one-minute quiz. Okay, yeah. Uh, so I haven't warned you yet about this, Graham, so now I'm going to warn you. Um, so right. the end of every episode, we do a one-minute quiz. The idea of the quiz is to test how good a parent you are. So, 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 so no pressure at all. My no, wife can no. listen to this and my kids can... Yeah, Very absolutely. scientific. And you, yeah, you're being yeah. right. Ranked against all of our other guests. Of yeah, course, yeah. So, so I believe the low score is 60. Something like that. At the that. minute, which was Stuart Heritage. Yeah. Uh, Scummy Mummies were somewhere in the they 70s. They were in the 70s, I think. Right, so already the scores are quite high that I have to You've think. You've got a lot. Not, out of yeah, 100. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. So you know, out of 1,000. You're not saying, oh, we've had people come in here and get five, so don't worry about this guy. No, no, no even our worst player got 70. <laughs> and they were Scummy Mummies. <laughs> yeah, but we mark like GCSE markers. It's fine. We're, yeah. we're quite generous. So uh, Keith will mark you. I will ask the question. Well, according to, according to whose criteria? According Our to criteria. So, so, you're, so you're the perfect dad, are you? I spent, yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. You're the perfect. From my perspective, very, it's an absolutely perfect. It's very father. scientific. <laughs> and at the end, you get to decide which of your children you give us. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Well, I just, I just make, want to make sure that the audience hears the way you're judging me, okay? So okay. you say, I marked it down because he failed to do X. Failed, failed <laughs> I, know, I can't, I'm, unfortunately, for scientific reasons, I can't reveal my, uh, my, my method. <laughs> that, you've got a blank piece of paper there, Keith. No, don't tell Jesus. Okay, sorry. Oh, my lack of natural justice happening here. <laughs> okay, okay, right. Can we silence, please? Thank okay, you. so Thank 10 you. questions. Yep. Are you writing numbers 1 to 10 on that yes, black bit of paper? No yeah. time limit. Great, great preparation. Well, one minute. It's one one minute, minute. But it regularly goes to three minutes. Oh, Let's see what we do. Okay, ready? Are you ready for your one minute quiz, Graham? I'm ready for my three minute quiz. Yep. <laughs> okay. Three and a half minute quiz. Go. <laughs> Best thing about being a parent? That it keeps getting better. <laughs>
And the worst? <laughs> worst thing about being a parent, I think the risk to your own relationship with your partner. It hasn't been bad for me, but I think it's the risk that you've got to manage. What, uh, when you go to a restaurant with your children, now they are of an age, who pays? Oh, you mean the, you're suggesting they would pay? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's my wife or me. I mean, it doesn't matter. So yeah, money. You could take that as red, not them. <laughs> have you friended your friends? Uh, your sorry. Have you friended your children on Facebook? No. Would you? No. No. Specifically, um, my son sent me a friend request, and I said to him, "Are you sure you mean this? <laughs> Are you sure this is a good idea?" And he sort of scratched his head and said, "Maybe you got a point there, Dad." <laughs> One thing that your parents did that you swore not to repeat and have? Maybe play football. <laughs> What's the most annoying thing other parents do? The most annoying thing other parents do is when they're young, it's that, I'm not framing this well, but they won't go out with you because they've got to spend all the time with their kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so not, not gi- And I would translate that as not giving their kids enough space, not, not, balancing, not balancing risk and freedom. Yeah. Safety and freedom. There you go. Not yeah. balancing safety and freedom well. Over, it's always overemphasizing safety. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Most disgusting parenting moment? Oh, it's probably something I did, um, <laughs> which, is, which is the really the, 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 the really scary thing. Oh, no, no, no. It's, it's always involves throwing up. Um, both, kids, both kids in a taxi in Hawaii, and one of them's throwing up because you just come off the plane, and that gets the other one doing the same thing. Oh, no. And I'm just sitting there trying to hold on to my guts, and I'm throwing up <laughs> at the back of this taxi. <laughs> oh, no. oh yeah, actually, actually, no. I've got, I've got, it's got to be for another one. It's got to be, we're in Mexico. My my wife has been wearing the same shirt because she can get it washed for, for three days or something like that. She finally goes to a souvenir store in Mexico, buys this clean shirt, and immediately our baby son threw up all over it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, worst name you've heard or considered for a child? The worst name? Well, my wife wanted to call our son Sebastian, mm. and... And I felt it was a, a ludicrously pretentious name. <laughs> and, and By was, modern standards, I'm not sure that's true. Yeah, no, no, but, but, but back then, um, oh, it'd be all right. He's got, I know another kid his age called Sebastian. There you go. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, what jobs would you like your children to do and why? Jobs, oh, this is really important to me, okay, because my wife grew up in a family that said doctor, lawyer, and listed them down pretty much. And I grew up in a family that said, wow, Graham's so far off the rails doing stuff we don't understand, we might as well let him go. <laughs> so, so I belong to category two, mm-hmm. and I would say that the jobs I most want my kids to do are the ones that allow them to realise their potential. Mm-hmm. And finally, what advice would you give anyone shortly to become a parent? Oh, absolutely. This is my thing, okay? <laughs> <laughs> The absolute, I want to speak to a man, the man here. I'd speak to the woman as well and say, this is what I just told your husband. Okay? <laughs> I'd say, okay, when this baby comes along, in the first very brief period of time at least, and probably much longer if your wife is going to be the primary carer, but at the beginning she is biologically going to be a primary carer, she is going to be more focused on that baby than you can believe. And you will care about the baby too, but you'll be half useless. Mm. So who's going to be looking after the relationship between you and your partner? And I say, that's your job. It's not a shared responsibility anymore. From the moment that baby's born, it's your job. If it fails, it's your fault. Mm. And, okay, she's focused on the baby. You focus on that relationship until it doesn't need your focus and she's ready to come back and help. Mm. 
Thank you very, very much, Graham Simpson. That was your one minute, please. Thank you. Uh, right, just no, give, uh, no, now we need to give Keith time to do maths, which yeah. can sometimes take up to half an hour. Uh, so do talk amongst yourselves. Okay, I had, it'd be fine. I can, the, the blank paper's no longer blank, though. You'll be pleased to I've, I've introduced um, half points now as well for a bit of excitement. I can see a six went up to a nine somewhere in the middle. So you offered, maybe that was the disgusting one where you offered two two answers instead of one. I can't no, think, no, I really think the probably answer to Disgusting is something that I did that disgusted my kids. Um, you know, you are. You know, you're, I can remember my kids saying anything more than once. You're an embarrassment to yourself and others. <laughs> <laughs> and those others were very clearly my kids. You know, going along to the school. It fate, wasn't run, the police saying that. Running, you know, running a, a store at the school fate or something like. You know, roll up, roll up. Oh God, Dad, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Dancing at a wedding, yeah. that sort of thing. Any anything you do as a parent is going to be you know, shameful to your kids at some point. 78. 78. I think that might be a winning mark thus far. Do you think? Out of three. It's certainly. (laughs) And if we were any kind of professionals, we'd have written down what the other two marks were. We'll have to go back and research it. But we will go back and research it. Anyway, all that remains for me to say is thank you very much, Graham Simpson. Uh, thank you very much, Keith Stewart, thank again. You. Thank uh, you, Ed Wood. Thank you. Uh, the Best of Adam Sharp is published by Michael Joseph and is out now. And A Boy Made of Blocks is out now, published by Sphere. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 